A preacher walks into a church. A church member asks him, Can you please preach on worship? The preacher says, Sure, I've got a great sermon on John 4.24. The title is, Worship in Spirit and in Truth. How about that? The church member says, No, that wouldn't do. The last three preachers who preach on worship preach on that same verse. Do you have something else? The preacher thought for a while and he said, Nope, I've got nothing. With today's book, you will know how other books in the Bible, verses other than John 4.24, speak on worship. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Biblical Worship, Theology for God's Glory, edited by Benjamin Forrest, Walter C. Kaiser Jr. and Vernon M. Whaley. 544 pages published by Craigle Academic in February 2021. Take note of that year because that is a very new book. The list price is $42.99, available in Amazon Kindle for $29.92 as of today's recording. And it's available in Logos for July, and there are only three days left in July, for the very, very low price of $9.99. Now, this is a very new book for a very low price. I don't think you will ever get this book at a cheaper price. And yes, I know that July ends in a few days, but in the last episode, episode 47, I did call attention to this deal. If you missed the deal because you didn't listen to that episode or this one, then I ask that you subscribe to Reading and Readers so that you can get book reviews on free or nearly free books as soon as it's out. Then you can make the decision to whether buy a nearly free book or download a free book. So today's book, Biblical Worship, is a Logos book, which to some is a signal that today's book is not a book for you. Because the Logos books are academic, scholarly, technical books, targeting pastors, academics, and serious Bible students. But wait, today's book is about worship. Now, if it's about archaeology, well, nobody says anything much because few know and few care about the subject. On the other hand, when it comes to worship, everybody has an opinion. Now, there are many good worship books written for a popular audience. Let me give you a few. Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. It's a nine marks book written by Mark Merkel. Only 176 pages. Another good book is by Keith and Christine Getty, that uh, the worship powerhouse couple. Uh, they wrote Sing, How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family and Church. This is also only in 176 pages. If you would prefer a shorter book, then you can read The Reset, Returning to the Heart of Worship and the Life of Undivided Devotion by Jeremy Riddle. This book is only 130 pages. And I got to know of this book from the Redman and Riddle uh, podcast hosted by Matt Redman and Jeremy Riddle. And if you listen to the podcast, it's like sitting in a lounge over coffee with two accomplished worship leaders tackling worship challenges with um, episode titles like Encounter vs. Entertainment 
or uh, comfort versus confrontation or holiness versus helpfulness. I found the podcast very uh, engaging and very interesting to see how these uh, worship leaders look at these uh, topics. Now, the point I am making is that there are tons and tons of great resources on worship. So why would anyone want to read a 544-page book by boring old scholars? In fact, if you read the three books I just suggested, the total page count of those three books combined is still less than this one book. And the names of those authors uh, like Jeremy Riddle and uh, Getty are more familiar than the, maybe the list of authors, these are scholars that we have in today's book. So to help, you, to help me make the case, I want to explain the difference between books written for a popular audience and books written for a more academic audience. Now, books for popular audiences uh, like the Nine Marks book or the Gettys book or the Reader book, they are written with one eye on the Bible and one eye on how the church or the family or the individual should worship. On the other hand, for today's book, Biblical Worship or other academic books on worship, what the writers do is they, they take the Bible, they tear some pages, and then they chew on those pages. After some years of sucking the ink of those pages, they then write about what they have tasted, and it is good. <laughs> um, it's not that one type of book is better than the other. It's uh, different methods, a uh, different audience. But what I am trying to do in this uh, episode is to push you, if you have not read academic books before, uh, so that you go beyond your comfort zone and you read titles that you normally would not and perhaps get a different way of, of uh, understanding what worship is. Now, speaking of types, there, today's book is a theology book. It's a, type, a theology type of book. And there are two ways to go about theology, systematic theology and biblical theology. There are probably more than two ways, but that's what I'm looking at today. Now, the label biblical theology is a bit confusing because it doesn't mean that it's more biblical than systematic. It just means its focus is on the books themselves. Now, that explanation doesn't seem to explain much. So I will give an illustration because I think it's important you know the difference between systematic and biblical theology for you to fully appreciate what you get in today's book. Imagine, if you will, in front of you, there are 66 packs of M&Ms, those uh, brightly colored button-sized uh, uh, chocolates, okay? So M&Ms. The systematic theologian would tear open all 66 packs and put all the red M&Ms in one pile, all the blue M&Ms in one pile, and so on. Then he would study the redness of the red M&Ms, the blueness of the blues, and so on. Eventually, he would tell you what is the essence of redness. Now, this is the systematic theologian's training to open up 66 books of the Bible and to tell you what is the holiness of God, what is sin, what is salvation, and so on. And uh, this is how most Christians understand theology and 
how they think it comes about. Now we come to the other approach, biblical theology. If you give 66 packs of NMMs to him, he opens them, but he doesn't put all the red M&Ms in one pile. Instead, what he does is he takes the pack, he picks out the red M&Ms, and places them next to the original wrapper with all the other colors nearby. When you ask him what is the essence of redness, he picks up the red M&M and puts it in front of you and tells you what it means to be red while holding the wrapper and the other colors in his other hand. You see, the way or one way of doing biblical theology is to tell you the holiness of God in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and so on. And then perhaps relating the holiness of God to other attributes of God, like love and justice and so on. So it's a different way of doing theology. Now, which is better, systematic or biblical? That's not a good question because we need both. Biblical theology is helpful when we want to see how a concept or idea is presented differently from one book to the next. But we still need to do some systematic theology to unify the elements. Otherwise, we risk pitting the Apostle Paul against the Apostle James to say that one theology is in conflict with the other. And we do that because we only see the differences and not what they share in common. So we need both systematic and biblical. And I needed to explain biblical theology because that is the big selling point of today's book. It's a biblical theology of worship. Consider the structure of the book. The book is divided into two main parts, worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament. In this book, there are 21 chapters for the Old Testament and 13 chapters for the New Testament. Whoa, 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 hold on there, Terence. Why are we making life so difficult? Instead of studying one book at a time, why don't we just do a word search on the word worship? Then we just study those verses and we will know what the Bible says about worship. It's simpler and probably makes more sense. Now, that doesn't work because, number one, you don't know what you are missing. For example, in the Old Testament, sacrifices, okay, you bring your lamb, your goat, your ram, your bull, your cow, and so on, your sacrifices are a vivid, visual, and fragrant element of worship. I think we can all agree. Now, when we go into the New Testament, we don't have those sacrifices, okay? We don't uh, do a grain offering and wave offering in the church today. But Paul still uses words like living sacrifice. And when he's using those words, he is using worship language because it's appealing to what we understand of worship in the Old Testament. When he says, when Paul says that he's being poured out like a drink offering, that is also worship. It's also a worship language offering, but it's not using the word worship, you see. So that is why we need um, just a simple word search will not help you. 
The second reason is that if you just do a word search on worship, what you get is not necessarily what you are looking for. For example, when the Magi uh, worshipped baby Jesus, they didn't worship him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Magi's worship is different from the Christian worship today. Thus, the use of the worship, the word worship in the Magi's uh, verse, is not helpful to formulate what is Christian worship, which is what we're looking for. That is why it is helpful to study what each book in the Bible teaches about worship. Hence why in today's book, we have 34 chapters from 36 contributors. The, the 36 contributors are professors of the Old Testament, professors of the New Testament. They have written journals and commentaries. And there are some recognizable, easily recognizable names in the list. These are people, okay, all these people are, are people who spend a lifetime chewing sucking the ink off their favorite pages of the Bible. And as we look at the table of contents, it's easy to see which chapters refer to which books because the chapters are subtitled with uh, worship in Joshua, worship in Judges, worship in the Corinthian church, worship in Galatians and Romans. So we can see what the chapters are referring to. Now, some chapters are groupings of books. One chapter looks at worship in the United Monarchy. Another chapter looks at worship in the divided kingdom. One chapter is on the pre-exilic minor prophets. Another chapter is on the post-exilic minor prophets. So you have groupings and you will see uh, different uh, books of the Bible within those groupings as they discuss in that chapter. But there is one, there is one special book that gets a special treatment. Instead of sharing a chapter with other books, it gets six chapters all to itself. Star treatment. Now, guess which book would that be? Hint, today we're looking at the book on worship. Another hint, which Bible book has the most chapters? Let's say 150 chapters. And the answer, of course, is the Psalms. So we have six books, one as an introduction, and five other books correspond uh, five other chapters corresponding to the five books in the Psalms. So, which is reasonable considering that Psalms is mainly worship. So, a deep study on it, a deep dive into it, is very helpful. In the New Testament section, we also see groupings. We have the Synoptic Gospels is in one chapter, Pastoral Epistles is in one, Prison Epistles is another, and uh, the last chapter has a wonderfully anticipatory title. Hallelujah, what a saviour, worship in the apocalypse. And the whole book then ends with a short epilogue from the editors followed by a scripture index. Now from the table of contents, we can see that it nearly covers the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Nearly covers, but does not cover completely. That's because there are some books missing. Proverbs, Job, James, and most disappointing of all, Daniel. Now, we are not just missing out on Daniel and his friends and their faith in God, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, and so on. 
we also miss out on a deeper look at King Nebuchadnezzar's worship of God, that surprising moment when he praises God, okay, this pagan king. And we're also missing out on how the nations will worship God in the last days, the prophecies of the end times of Daniel. So not having Daniel in this book is a real big gap in an otherwise comprehensive set of essays. But let's look at one chapter from the Old Testament, and then I'll look at one chapter from the New Testament, and then we move from there. From the Old Testament, I picked the chapter on Joshua, which is uh, chapter 5, and it's titled, Trust and Obedience as Worship to Yahweh. Worship in the Book of Joshua by J. Michael Thickpen. The editors for this uh, entire book have instructed every writer to divide their work into three sections, context, theology of worship, and significance. So for context, Thickpen begins by telling us how he defines worship and how that definition connects with the whole theme of Joshua. That definition is important because we would otherwise not connect trust and obedience to worship. So having connected the, the theme together with this worship, then he gives us a summary background of Joshua, which is helpful for us to establish the context. Who is Joshua? Why is he? What's the purpose of the book? What's going on? So we understand uh, the context behind it. Then moving to the next section, the theology of worship, he begins by unpacking Joshua 1 verse 1 to 9, where God prepares Joshua to be a leader. Thickpen writes, I quote, Joshua saw the miracles in the wilderness. He was nearby when Moses spoke with God in the tent of meeting. He had been obedient and called for the people to trust and obey at Kadesh Barnea. Joshua had heard the law given at Mount Sinai, and he had personally affirmed submission to it. He had heard Moses' exposition of the law just before his death. He had all the experience he needed to believe God would keep his promises, to prompt him to be courageous, to be obedient, and to spend a lifetime meditating on God's great acts. But God never once mentions Joshua's experiences or memories. Instead, God points him to the scriptures that existed at his time, the book of the law of Moses. This sets a tone for the rest of Joshua, emphasizing that the word of God, the scriptures, are the bedrock of all worship. End quote. Now, I'll tell you the significance of this theological insight, okay, this theology of worship to me. Every Christian knows that our worship is built on the word, but what about personal experiences, personal testimonies? Is it wrong to, to rely on them, to think about them, to use them? And that is not the correct question. The question is, where is the place of personal testimonies? Because our experiences are God-given, especially ones which we feel are blessings or teachings from God, lessons from God. And we see here that Joshua could have relied on personal testimonies. God could have asked Joshua to remember what he had seen. But instead, God emphasizes scripture. God says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. God emphasizes scripture without necessarily dismissing Joshua's experience. Thickpen tells us that this is important for two reasons. First is authentication. Israel cannot determine what is true or false from Joshua's personal experience. 
Israel can only do that through scripture. Second is continuity. What connects, what links Israel from one generation to the next is not Joshua's personal experience. It is scripture. And both of these reasons are true for us today. You nod your head, but you ask, all right, what, how, how is this related to worship? And Thickpen, in his essay, makes the case that worship is a matter of life and death. He expounds on Joshua 2 and Joshua 7, which contain the story of Rahab and the story of Achan. Thickpen writes, I quote, If the story of Rahab helps to confirm the life and death nature of worship, the account of Achan inscribes it in stone. Not worshipping the Lord, not trusting and obeying, is deadly. End quote. Worship is a matter of life and death. Now you can chew on this statement for a long, long time. And by chewing on it, reflecting on the stories of Rahab and Achan, you can draw significance in your own life, in your own situation, and in how you think about worship. Which is the point of this book, I would say. It allows you to see worship in other verses, other stories, other than John 4.24. Worshipping in spirit and in truth. A beautiful verse, but not the only word on worship. Now let's move to uh, the New Testament. There is more to say in Thickpen's essay, and there are so many good essays in the Old Testament, but let's move on. My next one is on chapter 31, and it's titled, Grounded in Allegiance to Christ and Affection for God, Worship in John's Letters by Andreas Kostenberger. Unlike Thickpen's essay, Kostenberger writes only two paragraphs for the context. One paragraph to summarize the three letters of John, and one paragraph to explain that John doesn't directly talk about worship, but there is still something here to learn that applies to worship. In the next section, the theology of worship, he writes first under the, the first thing he wants to write about is the personal experience. Kostenberger comments on 1 John 1, 1, which reads, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. End quote. So that's 1 John 1, 1. And Kostenberger comments, I quote, John's worship of Jesus, the word of life, is grounded in personal experience. John had encountered the word that had become flesh in Jesus, the life-giving word, and had come to embrace him as the God-sent Messiah and God-given atonement for the sins of the world and place his faith in him. This personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in turn became the ground of fellowship with others and of the message John proclaimed. Thus properly understood, worship, defined as recognizing the true worth of God's gift in Jesus and a believing response to it, is at the root of Christian fellowship and proclamation. End quote. So, from personal experience, Kostenberger then goes on to elaborate on propitiation, love, spiritual warfare, confession, love revisited, and faith. So those are the subsections of his uh, of uh, his essay. And he concludes the essay by summarizing the theology of worship and tying it with the, with, with the significance of it uh, in our today's time. 
and he does all of that in two paragraphs. You will note that a big chunk of this essay, of his essay, is in the middle section, the theology of worship, which I will talk more about later. I pick Kostenberger's essay as uh, because it's an interesting contrast with Tickpen's essay. Tickpen says God never once mentions Joshua's experiences or memories. That's a quote. On the other hand, Kostenberger says John's worship of Jesus is grounded on personal experience. End quote. So what each writes on worship for their assigned essays, for their assigned books, is very consistent. You don't see any clashes. But when we put the essays side by side, then we can see some tension. Joshua does not depend on personal experience. John depends on personal experience. So what are we supposed to think? Is it because did this tension or conflict occur because Thickpen and Kostenberger are fundamentally in disagreement? Or, more worryingly, is it because Joshua and John are in conflict? This type of tension occurs somewhat regularly or somewhat more common in biblical theology because you are focused on reading the book by itself, isn't it? So I, I hope you understand the difference between biblical theology and systematic now. Now, it's not to say that systematic theology guarantees that there are no conflicts, but the way we go about systematic theology is that once we get all those M&Ms, we are looking at all the M&Ms, we are looking at all the data, so we are trying to harmonize all the data that is in front of us. The danger with systematic theology is that you might interpret the data apart from where the data came from. So you're not looking at the wrapper, you're not looking at the context where it's coming from, and you're just interpreting it based on that theme, solely based on that theme or category. So that's a danger for systematic uh, theology. So biblical theology does not give you everything that you need. You need to harmonize the data as well. And so when it comes to Kostenberger or Thigpen, um, to understand how to resolve or harmonize what they're saying, well, you need to read the original source and you need to figure it out how to harmonize the two. They are not doing it for you because that's not what they are trying to do. Now, there is another thing about uh, Thickpen and Kostenberger's essay which I want to point out. You will see that uh, Kostenberger, uh, he has uh, written three sections uh, Thickpen has also written his three sections because the editors had instructed contributors to organize their essays in those three sections. Context, theology of worship, and significance. The thing is that writers were free to write as much or as little in those sections. And some writers wrote a lot for significance. They wrote subsections, sections, uh, pages of uh, uh, explaining the significance for us today. But some writers, like Kostenberger, wrote very little. They wrote a paragraph or two and just concluded it. And the thing is that when I read this book from cover to cover, it was a jerky experience. It's like watching a movie with a long, draggy ending. Okay, very long, draggy. You don't know whether it's going to end or not. Then you watch another movie, another chapter, another movie, and the ending just suddenly happened. And you are left wondering, is, is that it? Is, is, is that the end of the movie? 
Oh. So, because of that experience, so the book doesn't seem to make a good reading experience if you are reading it from cover to cover. Now, just uh, zooming uh, back, okay, just uh, looking at the whole book. Um, the target audience for this book is clearly, clearly the preacher, pastor, or serious Bible student. If you're going to write a paper on worship or preach on worship or teach on worship, then this is an obviously helpful book. You have recent scholarship, you have reliable scholars here. Every chapter has its own bibliography, which can be a source for other leads. For example, in, um, in the Kostenberger essay, he actually tells us that there's a, a, a book, a whole book that talks about worship for the John's letters. So that can be an interesting or useful resource if you're preparing to preach on 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John on the topic of worship. Now, because it's obvious uh, who this uh, book is for, and those who are going to study or preach or write a paper on, on uh, worship, they would, I think, just get this book. I think you might as well do it because it's deeply discounted now. So I just want to talk to the not-so-obvious uh, target, which is the everyday reader who I think can benefit from a little stretching of the reading muscles. I tend to do this often because I really want to encourage you to uh, stretch and reach for something that you normally don't read. Now, we know, we all know as Christians that our worship is ultimately based on the Bible. We may watch YouTube or listen to podcasts, read books, blogs, and tweets, but ultimately we know that we get our understanding of worship from the Bible. The problem is that very few of us would read the Bible from cover to cover to study worship. That's why we read the 100-page, 200-page books, because someone else did the hard work. What I'm saying here is that why don't we do the hard work, but maybe get some help doing it? <laughs> Because we want to get nearer to the Bible, and uh, we can do that by, you know, just reading an essay on what is worship in Joshua. So I'm not asking you to read a whole book. I'm asking you to read an essay, a chapter. What does the book of Joshua say about worship? What does the letters of John say about worship? And by doing this, you can get a more solid grasp of the source material because they are you are chewing on these uh, pages of the Bible. The thing is that reading this book or any biblical theology book will help you be a better Bible reader, a better Bible thinker. You will be more familiar with the themes and uh, outlines of the books of the Bible. You will see how the writer takes a verse and walks you to the conclusion. In this case, the conclusion is related to worship. So the next time you can take a verse from the Bible and make your own biblical conclusions. And those conclusions may not be related to worship. It can be talking about gender roles or race or something more tame like parenting so that you can learn how others interpret and reach a conclusion and apply it into our everyday life. Context, theology of worship, and significance. And your understanding of worship, if you read this book, will be more than what most people would just quote, worship in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. Because you can see worship in every book of the Bible. You will be able to see that, for example, I mentioned before, uh, living sacrifices, uh, 
pour, being, uh, being poured out like a drink offering. Most people would not see those things as worship language until it was pointed out to them. And uh, isn't that great that you can see worship in every book of the Bible? I think that's a fantastic thing. Isn't that a worthy goal? And consider, if everybody did this, would we have worship wars? If everybody had a biblical view of what is worship, I think that the temperature on worship wars would dramatically reduce. And if you read it, then you can contribute to a better atmosphere, to a better uh, Bible-focused, Bible-based, uh, Bible-exalting uh, discussion on controversial matters like worship. Now, this is, I just want to make this clear. This is not to say that this book is the definitive word on worship and that everything, you, everything written here you should just accept without consideration. There are statements in the book that I am not fully behind. For example, in one essay, it says that the Jerusalem walls in Nehemiah was purely for consecration and not for defense. That's my first time hearing it, so I need to study it a bit more before I get behind the idea, behind that statement. And, and then in another essay, for example, it says that priests and Levites, their roles are fulfilled by worship pastors today. Now, there, would, there was a time when I would have just accepted that as obviously true. Now, I think that you need to back that statement up a bit and probably with more nuance. Because the way I understand it, you can't say worship leaders are priests because, one, uh, worship leaders are not very well defined in the New Testament. And two, the New Testament actually says that we are all priests. So you kind of have to explain how does the priesthood of all believers work in that scheme of yours where you say worship pastors are like priests. Now, the thing is that overall, many of these statements that uh, I have a problem with or would challenge are not the main thrust of the essay. So accordingly, I have set them aside. So these are statements do not derail the main points of the essay or the approach, the biblical theological approach that the writers take, that the book takes, which is, I think, the main part that we can learn. And if you like the biblical theology approach on worship, mm -hmm. then uh, what other books can you consider? There are two books here that were cited so often that the editors acknowledge them in their introduction. For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship by Daniel I. Block, 432 pages published by Baker Academic in September 2016. So that's one book. The other book that's quoted uh, very, very frequently is Recalling the Hope of Glory, Biblical Worship from the Garden to the New Creation by Alan P. Ross, 592 pages published by Craigle Academic in November 2006. And if you want to get the links to those uh, books, you can look at the show notes or you can go to the website uh, www.readingreaders.com. So if you like the idea of biblical theology, but uh, maybe on other topics, you will be glad to know that today's book is part of a series called Biblical Theology for the Church. So today's book is part of a series, although <laughs> there are only two books in the series for now. The other, the, today's book is on worship. The other book is on biblical leadership. So I anticipate, we can all anticipate that there will be more goodness to come. And perhaps if you buy this book, you will encourage the publishers and the writers to quickly give us more. 
There is another series of biblical theology that I thoroughly enjoy, which is the NSBT, the New Studies in Biblical Theology. It's a wonderful series, and quite a few of the NSBT books were quoted in today's uh, book. In this series, there are 53 books and counting with titles on race, prayer, redemption, covenant, death, and the afterlife, and many more. I have read uh, seven of uh, seven of the books from this series, and they are just splendid. I just enjoy them, very insightful, and very good in getting the mind working, uh, having a biblical mind to, uh, in reading these books. So, uh, in conclusion, uh, today's book, uh, Biblical Worship, is available for the very, very low price of $9.99 in Logos. You just have to go to the free book of the month link. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's not... Now, when you go to the link, it um, uh, if you go to the, uh, the logos.com link, it uh, it's not the free book of the month, okay? So uh, this book is not free. What you have to do is that you have to scroll down, scroll, scroll, scroll down past the many good deals, and then you, you reach this uh, biblical worship that's available for $9.99. I honestly don't see how you can get this book at an even lower price. And even if you miss Logos' offer, which is very likely if you're listening to this um, uh, after July 2022, I hope you got something out of today's book review that might encourage you to try to read a biblical theology book if you have never tried one before. Or maybe just get away from the online chatter and just draw nearer to the Bible to know what the Bible itself says about worship instead of reading what other people say. And who knows, maybe there would be another deal uh, like this uh, someday and you can snap it up uh, one day after hearing the good things I say about it in this review. So I hope you get something from this uh, book review, and uh, that's it. This is a Reading and Reader's Review of Biblical Worship, Theology for God's Glory, edited by Benjamin Forrest, Walter C. Kaiser Jr., and Vernon M. Whaley. Today's episode is a special episode because, one, it's the first time I release four book reviews in a month. Phew, it's uh, tiring. <laughs> And two, I'm releasing this out of the normal schedule. I normally release my episodes on Monday, and I'm doing it today uh, because I want to get it out before the end of the month, before the deal ends. So if you don't want to miss uh, book reviews on free books or on nearly free books or on good books, then please subscribe to Reading and Readers a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Tell all your friends and they will thank you for it. And now I'm going to take a well-deserved rest and I will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.